Robert, or Bob Thurman as he's known to many, is a legend in the world of Buddhism. An academic as well as a practitioner, he has authored and translated a number of prominent books on the particular branch of Buddhism that he's interested in and practiced for many years, Vajrayana or Tibetan Buddhism. Having retired in 2019, Bob is now 80 years old, but is as quick-witted and erudite as ever, I think, giving an incredible interview here that, uh, not all that, although not always linear, not always as simple as I might have liked, really does give a great overview and flavour of the Buddhist path from one who has been steeped in it for most of his life as a practitioner and again as an academic. So in our chat, he discusses the subject from the fundamental ground of impermanence that characterises the teaching of Buddhism, rebuffing my original question regarding what Buddhist, uh, Buddhists believe to explain that rather Buddhists don't believe anything, but it's not to go down the water apart of emptiness. Emptiness being fullness and fullness being emptiness. Instead, Bob gives a really practical surmisal actually of the fact that ultimately the nature of a certain kind of holding of belief takes us into believing really strongly about ourselves and a sense of a rigid sense of self that finally and especially appositely now creates all the wars and all the suffering of the world. This strongly defined sense of self held against the world. Okay. Anyway, amongst other things, we briefly touch on so many other facets of Buddhism, key questions that many of us uh, would, would probably like answered about Buddhism, like, for example, the misunderstanding that Buddhists don't have a god or worship gods. They do, many. Or to be a Buddhist, that you have to believe in suffering. You have to, you have to believe the world is suffering. You don't. You can still enjoy your burger and your TV. <laughs> or, in fact, that you have to meditate to be a Buddhist. Well, that is not inherently true either, apparently. So. It's a really fantastic and eye-opening interview that is also seriously entertaining as a chat with one of the most well-respected res Buddhist teachers of our current era, really. A rare opportunity to get this interview with him. So I hope you enjoy it. And as always, we'll happily receive donations via our podcast page. If you've enjoyed it at all, or you feel like you'd like to contribute, that would be much appreciated. You can also contribute, however, by reviewing us on iTunes or suggesting any guests that you'd like to hear from. So, hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you will enjoy it. And <laughs> thank you, Bob. Welcome. So you're going to be there. We're going to have a dialogue. Then. That's I'm dialoguing now, Bob. Yeah. Good. So okay, welcome, great. welcome to uh, all right. Thank the, you. The, the podcast, Kieran Yoga. And, um, wonderful, wonderful. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Bob is a Buddhist. Uh, can we call you scholar? Um, I suppose we can call you. Uh, scholar. I'm retired. Because I'm retired, but uh, and, well. uh, I'm sort of a scholar. Yeah. I have a PhD. I have yeah. a PhD. Oh well, I think you're definitely a scholar. But, and uh, I have some honorary degrees from Indian universities, and um, and I almost have, I have a sort of honorary geisha degree, but only honorary. Wow. I never wow. actually passed their exam in this life. That's incredible. So I, I'm sort of Good. a scholar. Wow, you but I, I don't like. Yeah. I don't. I don't really. I'm not a really big. I like. I like to be a practitioner more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, a good scholar is a practitioner. Let's just crack on them, Bob. What I mean, first of all, what does a Buddhist believe? What What makes? I mean, you know, for someone who who's heard of the term Buddhist, and, and they might have heard well, that you, Buddhist, you have Buddhist, to. Buddhist, Buddhist tries not to believe too hard. Right. Buddhist tries not to get too caught up in rigid belief. In fact, rigid belief is a kind of 
a klesha, what we call klesha, which means if you know that from Yoga Sutra. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the Yoga poisons. Sutra is, ha is half a Buddhist text, by the way. But anyway, uh, which I can prove to you. But um, uh, it's, uh, it's very suspicious of belief because uh, when people become doggedly attached to a belief, they will sacrifice their life on this belief. They will sacrifice other people's lives on that belief. And they sacrifice their awareness on having to rigidly fit in a belief. You know, it's like dogmatism, you know. It's considered dangerous. And, uh, and therefore, Buddhists are, are leery of beliefs, put it that way. And they have a, a wonderful teaching uh, called about, uh, which is something called, uh, maybe a little highfalutin word for, for people in general. Yeah. Her hermeneutical. Okay, having right. to do hermeneutics, you know, yeah. having to do with uh, theory of interpretation. How you intend, they have what they call definitive meaning teaching and interpretable meaning teaching. And um, in that light, the only definitive meaning teaching is negation about the absoluteness of any belief or the absoluteness of anything, actually, even, almost. And this kind of taps into the idea of the, a life being illusion, you know, the reality being kind of maya. Well, or, it yeah. connects to that. It connects to that. So what it means is that, therefore, all relative realities, which are us, are, are, are only relative. They're not wrapped around any kind of absolute. They're empty of anything that doesn't change in the middle of them. Like, for example, my or your identity. You know, our identities are, well, we have identity cards, which they get old. We have to put them in plastic so they don't get worn. We're being taken in and out of our wallet. Yeah. You know, and they, the card itself changes yeah. over time. Yeah. And, uh, and what, they, what it refers to changes over time, even though we're a number in some different databases. But we have changed during that, those times, you know. And everything is relational. And therefore, we have to make the best that we can out of adapting to rel relationships. And of course, the best way we can adapt is by being friendly and loving in our relationships, trying to ameliorate the quality of them as much as possible. And therefore, belief, if, we, if our belief about anything becomes too intense, it tends to add to a sense of alienation. And, and we, we, we tend to, out of a sense of insecurity, we tend to say, well, I'm absolutely me, and I'm absolutely alive, and I'm absolutely an American, and I'm absolutely Bob, and I'm absolutely male, and I'm absolutely blah, blah, blah. And then, but none of those things are absolute. They're all relative. How would, that, how, would that, how would that differ then? I'm just thinking, how would that differ then to someone who says, well, if you don't have any beliefs, and I, you know, I don't have any beliefs, the the person who's just going around and just kind of living life, uh, you know, uh, you know, what happens happens, you know, like a now TV, now burger, now work, you okay, know, what's, right. the, what's, what's the difference between your set of non-beliefs and that person who doesn't really believe anything and just kind of lives life kind of circumstantially, well, you know? Well, the difference is that it's not a difference of not having beliefs. You see, that's exactly. The kind of idea people think in order for belief to have any bearing, it has to be based on an absolute. And this comes from, from millennia of monotheism, rigidly interpreted by 
authorities who want to be absolutely obeyed. And even in the English language, when you think you have an aha experience, you call it understand. But what are you standing under? <laughs> That's what I want okay. to know. You're standing okay. under God. You're standing under the king. You're standing right. under the high priest. You're obeying. And that creates rigidity. As someone who doesn't stand under what you stand under, oh, kill them, burn them at the stake. You know, it's, it's lethal, actually. Where, whereas the difference is when you believe this, and for example, you mentioned the burger and TV. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, if those are absolutes, then, then the person who's a vegetarian is a heretic. Or if a, if a vegetarian thinks it's absolutely evil to eat a burger, then you're a heretic by eating a burger. And then there could be a war between the vegetarians and the meat eaters. And in a way, there is a kind of, there tends to be actually slightly kind of war. And, you know, like uh, someone who doesn't want to have a burger can be accused of being a terrorist. You know, eco-terrorist they have, you know. And uh, the, the burger fanatics, you know. And, yeah, we should be killing those cows. Yeah, they're just cows. You know, they, they have absolute belief they have no soul to animals. Because it says so in some old book where some guy who was a butcher wrote down that they didn't have a soul so people would buy his stuff. They wouldn't feel bad that they were slaughtering the animals and the sheep. And so they wrote it down in a book and said, God said so. And, okay, oh, God said so. Okay, fanatic. You know, it's, that's the difference. If you're a nice person, you say, well, I like cows. I don't want to kill them. I don't want to eat beef. You know, I'm not going to eat beef. But you're okay, practicing. Good. I mean, there's huge amounts of practices in Buddhism. And they, yes, they, aren't, yes. they, aren't they pinned to some kind of belief in reality in a certain way? Well, you know, a relational belief. Something that this is good and that isn't good and this is bad and that isn't bad. But they're not absolute beliefs. They're relational beliefs. What's the fundamental right? What's the fundamental one? I mean, because uh, often people say, "Well, Buddhism is about suffering, isn't it?" You have to you have to believe in suffering, or you have to suffer to, to be interested in Buddhism. No, no, right? no, no. You don't have to believe in suffering. Okay. You have well, the fundamental one kind of is belief in freedom. Okay. And that and that relates to a belief in goodness. That the universe is basically good. Nature is basically good. Reality is basically good. Life and death are basically good. So you don't have to fight it, fight anybody. And, uh, and that's the basic one, you know, nirvana. The cessation of suffering is the basic, you could say, the basic belief. But, uh, but that doesn't prevent you from acknowledging the symptom of suffering a lot when you're an idiot, when you don't know what's going on. When you have a fanatic belief that is contrary to reality, unscientific, and then you're, you're operating in the dark in that sense, then you're going to bump into things. That's, that's, uh, that's going to create suffering. So, you know, Socrates said, you know, Buddhists are wrongly accused of being very pessimistic because the Buddha gave us first noble Yeah, that's what I'm consider. getting at. Yeah, the, the, yeah, the truth yeah, of suffering. You, right? it, right. you can call it a fact. When, you have, when someone gives, tells you this is a fact, you might say, okay, that's, that's credible. I'll believe that. Okay, but it's not absolute. You know they could be making a mistake. Yeah. You could look at it again and see it from another perspective, and you'd know that that was actually wrong. So you're like, if you're a scientist, 
you don't take any so-called fact as an absolute. It's a hypothesis awaiting falsification, verified by data and interpretation up to a point. But it's not absolute, right? That's the essence of modern science. And yet they are absolutely dogmatic about materialism. There's no soul, there's no mind, there's no future life. Those are big dogmas for them. Mm, true. Mm, mm. Buddhists think there is a future life and a past life because that's sensible to them. They're waiting for someone to disprove it. Fine, please go ahead and disprove it. But they don't take a dogmatic claim as a disproof, just a dismissing. Mm, you know? mm. But we don't consider the evidence for it because we say ahead of time it's completely impossible. That's dogmatism, and that we don't accept. So relative belief is much more flexible, like a scientific belief. But also you're living, I mean, you could also be living your whole life, but you're living a whole life practicing Buddhism, you know, based on the idea that there is this cycle and, you know, reincarnation happens and you can't just, you know, life isn't just about making hay while the sun shines, that, you know, you better prepare. Well, that is, no, that's pretty good. Right. That is pretty good definition of life. Okay, okay. Making hay while right. the sun shines is All not right. bad. Okay. As long as you don't think it's absolute hay <laughs> and it's an absolute sun <coughs> and, it's, and that it's going to shine forever. And therefore, you have a kind of prudential way so of it's okay taking to, it's care. O- it's okay to believe in life so it can be pleasurable and happy like that. Or you don't have to believe no, in suffering. No, you don't have to believe that life is suffering. Life is dukkha. No, 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 no. No, Listen, listen. Socrates famously said, if the translation is accurate, I don't know Greek, I confess, which I regret that I don't know Greek. I know some Latin. It's never never too late. I know, that's true. I agree. (laughs) But I haven't just taken time. And he famously said that the unexamined life is not worth living. But Buddha never said that the unenlightened life is not worth living. He just simply said it will always be frustrating which you can solve by becoming enlightened. Very easily, actually. Although there are degrees, you know. So it's a, you know, the really highest level takes a, lot, a little bit of effort, you know. Easy level is pretty quick, you know. Being so, more practical, <laughs> commonsensical. So you live your life being practical and commonsensical. It's not suffering as such, it's more just like there's an inherent sense of dissatisfaction that makes one... Because why well, would someone you're, want no, but to if get... you're unenlightened, if you're unenlightened, if you think that Adam is the center of everything, you're going to be very frustrated. Okay. Why? No, because instantaneously, you're set against everybody else. Because you know damn well that nobody else thinks Adam is the center of the universe, except mm. for mom... <laughs> briefly, when you're in the middle of her belly, and occasionally some beloved, temporarily, mm. during a honeymoon, <laughs> which is usually all too short. And, and so, but when you still think so, I'm the one, you know, like Neo in the Matrix, I'm the one. <laughs> you know, when you think that, you're mm. set against everything. And not only that, you know that everybody else thinks they're the one and that you don't agree with them. So you, it's all, it's a, you know, your famous Thomas Hobbes, war of all against all is down there at a subliminal level for the person who thinks that they are absolutely the one. And that that feeling that they have that I'm really real, or as my old geisha used to say, you're right when you think Adam is real. But if you go around thinking Adam is really real, then you're in trouble. 
Oh, so first of all, let's rewind. What is this enlightenment then? What is the aim? Because you're right, you're saying you're aiming practices, like you're aiming, you're you're practicing something. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Aim is to be truly happy. Okay. Ultimately happy, free of any suffering, all the time, permanently, forever, and actually retroactively back into the past, forever, beginninglessly, infinitely, endlessly. That's the aim. And that is very practically attainable, they say. But unfortunately, Buddha was so great. I love the guy. He says, oh, I know everything now, and I'm totally happy. I'm very sorry. I have to apologize because I can't really explain it to you. (laughs) (laughs) Because why? Because if you get attached to even that statement that I make, you know, and then think that, believe that, absolute, make that an absolute thing to yourself, then you might get in trouble for that. Because words are always dualistic. They're always partial. They always have a counter, uh, you know, side. You know, there's always cognitive dissonance involved in, in, in conceptual, conceptualizing. So words are imperfect. And the, but on the other hand, the fact, even the, the fact that I say I can't explain it to you is already very good. Because going along with that is the idea that you can understand it yourself. Or realize it would be better, actually, in that case, than understand. But anyway, you can realize it yourself. And and I can help you to figure out the method of how you can educate yourself to realize it. And that, that you can do. So it's kind of an education system, is what it is, rather than a religious dogmatic belief system. Although, although there is something called realistic belief, but that's a kind of scientific type belief based on evidence and realizing that the belief itself is hypothetical and being open to counterexample. So what about this then? Enlightenment is absolute non-rigidity. You could say, but you know what? There is no such thing as absolute non-rigidity. There's only relative. <laughs> Con- constant, non- it's constant non-rigidity. Or- <laughs> yeah, you could say. But non-rigidity means the opposite of rigidity. So for there to be absolute non-rigidity, there has to be absolute rigidity, which there doesn't, which doesn't exist. So therefore, absolute non-rigidity is not possible. But there can be relative non-rigidity. That's the whole thing, you see? And that leads me to say, where are you holding the self in here? Where, where does the self come in? What do you think? You, are the, you don't hold the self. You are the self. You, you actually, the way of being relatively non You said it was real and give, not real. You give away the self at all times. You're constantly, you, what the self is, is your act of constant generosity, and which is a constant giving. So everything you get, you give instantaneously, immediately. And being yourself is, 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 is you are a walking gift to the world. That's what it is. And that's the way to be a self, is to be, a, to be selflessly a self. If the self isn't real, what's the self aiming for? How can no, the self... It is relatively, right. No, the self is relatively real. It's always changing. So it's never one thing. It's always changing. It's either growing or it's decaying, one or the other. And so, but if you're giving it away at all times, it's always growing. You know, even you have pleasure, to give the pleasure away when you get it is the way to continue to do it. And to give it away means let it take you. Don't try to grab it. 
The reason that we don't enjoy pleasure is we try to grab it and make it best bigger. We want to make it more. And then we get really frustrated because it doesn't last. And so we strangle it in the process of ex experiencing it. So therefore, we don't really enjoy it. That's why it's called the suffering of change. But if we give it away at the minute, we get it, it just grows, takes us with it. And that's when we, we are going toward true happiness, which is freedom. We let the self is freedom. That's what it is. But as a relative one that's never perfectly free, it's totally interconnected with everybody else. And therefore, there's no perfect freedom, or rather, perfect freedom is realizing there's always a little room for improvement. <laughs> so with this, this, uh, this idea of reincarnation, does it, does it posit an inherent self that's independent of others, that, that's reincarnating, no, 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 and, that, no, can get, and no. that can get somewhere, that can get enlightenment? No. Because you always hear in Buddhism that there's no, there's no inherent sense of self. Whereas in yoga, like if we, if we try and differentiate between, say, yoga philosophy or one of the six darshanas, like Samkhya and yoga, in yoga philosophy, and Buddhism, it's the nature of self, right? The, the Buddhists don't believe in inherent wait, sense of self. Do you, do you remember the phrase, Atma Bhava Bhavana Nivirti? Yes. Do you know that phrase? Yes, in the yoga Atma sutras. Atma Bhava yeah, yeah, yeah. Bhavana Nivirti. Yeah, yeah. Then the, 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 the Atma in the, resides in the, in the uh, Nirvana. Well, well that, that is in the Kaivalya chapter at the end. And it says that when you're really free, you cease the cultivation, or bhavana means a realization, actually making real, the reality of the self. You cease making... Uh, making real a seeming reality of the self. So, in other words, you're selflessly a self. Nivriti means you terminate. Bhavana constantly reinforcing a sense of reality of the self, Atma Bhava. You, you don't Bhavana it anymore. Bhavana means make it real. Bhava means to be real, from Bhu to be real, right? So, what is it? There's no opposition in, between Hinduism and Buddhism about self and selflessness. It's only the quality of self. Absolute self is useless because the relative one can't enjoy it. Because in order to enjoy it, it would have to relate to it. So therefore, the absolute self is the relative self terminating the stressful activity of trying to keep the self as actually real. Letting go of it, in other words. <laughs> this is totally the case. And uh, there's no India, this is the heart of India, is the self of self. Now, you could say that what we call nowadays Hinduism, which in those days they didn't call it Hinduism, they called Sankhya or Mimamsa or, or, or Vedanta or whatever it is. But you could say that they, would, they prefer the phrase selfless self, whereas the Buddhists might prefer the phrase the self of selflessness. <laughs> But what is the difference? It's minimal. It's a matter of emphasis. It's, it's a matter of psychological analysis, where what really gets people in trouble is when they form a sense of self, and somehow they're encouraged to think it corresponds to an absolute barcode or a little homunculus in there 
a little fixed atom, mm. hopefully when you were about 16 years of age in your prime, <laughs> and that it never changes, mm. even though the other old atom goes, starts to get decrepit, <laughs> yeah. starts to get this and that, <laughs> yeah. a little yeah. bit less, little less stamina, a little yeah. less this and that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And wait, wait till you're wait till you're 80. <laughs> Just wait. Okay. So the point is, but if you're liberated from that. Therefore, when Indra speaks to Yajnavalkya in that Upanishad, and he says, well, I'm Indra. He says, no, that's not yourself. Well, I'm so-and-so, God, no, that's not yourself. Neti, neti, naiti, 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 naiti. Is that Buddhism? No, that's Upanishad. Mm. Mm -hmm. So this is one thing the yoga people need them to help. For example, when they first tried downward dog, their shoulders hurt. Their elbows got sore. Their chest couldn't hold it up like a push-up kind of. Their butt hurt. The backs of their thighs hurt. I'll never be able to do this. And, if, and, and, and the, the sense of themselves as having a rigid body identity was blocking the idea that gradually, but not pushing absolutely, to fit some sort of absolute model of a picture of some yogi doing downward dog, but gradually they can stretch themselves into that over weeks and months and regular repetitions of Surya Namaskara and the Ashtanga mm. uh, routines and blah, blah, blah. And therefore, the resilience of the physical self, that it's a selfless self, that at any one stage is not exactly this or that structure, and therefore that there's a tradition that knows that this and that asana and so forth can be, or, or liberate the inner sensitivities and develop an inner sense of well-being and health and avoid arthritis and blah, blah, blah. They therefore want to adopt those postures and they want to heal themselves ahead of time mm. from being like a victim of ecotrin or aspirin and being an arthritic from around mid-40s until they croak painfully and miserably at 65. Instead of having and having a short health span, but a longer lifespan, and living in misery, and therefore being victim of Buddhism. <laughs> what What are you aiming for? I mean, is there any aim for future lives, or is it was this the life? Yes. Yeah, where, 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 where does the metaphysics or God come into this? Well, the gods said to Buddha, the God who was thought of as the creator in Buddha's time, Brahma. Vishnu and Shiva were not any great sheikhs at that time, <laughs> but Brahma was. Okay. You know, Vishnu and Shiva, the words were around, but although Shiva didn't mean destroyer, Shiva means peace hmm. and bliss. Shiva means hmm. peace and bliss. It doesn't mean that, hmm. you know, Rudra. Mm -hmm. Rudra is the, is the fierce one. And, uh, but Brahma was the creator. So one, one of the monks who had astral projection, who had developed ability to go out, do out of body, subtle body traveling, you know, with the subtle body sheaths, he could use them, uh, went up to Brahma's heaven, and he went into Brahma. It's a recorded in a book. And he went in there, and he said, Oh, great Brahma, I finally found you. So honored, and thank you so much for being here. I heard you created the universe. How did you do it? What was there before you created it? And how does it work? And you know what Brahma said? <laughs> he said, do you have an appointment? I'm really busy. 
I'm I'm the great Brahma, blah blah blah. He recited all kinds of you know his his credentials, his like his epithets. You know? Yeah, yeah. And the guy said, Kevada is the name of the guy, Kevada the yogi. And he said, I know who you are, and I respect you, and it's great. Please, it's all right. I'm sorry, I don't have an appointment, but could you tell me how it works? I just want to know it. They went through this three or four times. Finally, he said, okay, I'm sorry to bother you then. I'll leave, and I'll, I'll start praying outside for an appointment. But anyway, temporarily, I don't want to bother the great God, etc. So he left. It was like a Wizard of Oz story, I tell you. So then as he's on his way back down through the formless realms, you know, into the form realms and all this, in the higher realms of form, pure form, and the Brahma, Brahma, Brahma body deity realms, you know, many other deities in that realm. Uh, he, uh, the one big deity suddenly comes and says, hey, hang on, hey, hang out, hang out, hang on. I want to, I want to talk to you. And he was scared. And he said, oh, look, I'm leaving. Don't worry, I'm not going to bother you. He says, no, I didn't mind to rebuff your question. He said, it's only that I couldn't answer it because I don't know how the world was created because I didn't create it. And I just was the first person I was, I'm a very lucky guy. I was in a previous state in, a, in another universe. And when this one reached a certain moment where it could sustain a certain type of living beings, I came in as the first lucky one, huh. the most powerful among mm. the deities. Mm. And, you know, I, I'm really powerful and I love people. And uh, I do my best for them. But I couldn't answer you in there because there were some godlings in there, some Brahma-bodied other deities who showed up after me. And when they saw me, they said, Papa, tell us what to do. And I said, I'm not your Papa. I'm just another one of the gods. Like, don't tell me Papa. And, uh, and they, but they got so freaked out. I finally said, okay, I'm Papa. <laughs> Take a break. Everything's <sighs> fine. Doing my best, we'll all be fine. And I reassured them. And if I had said to them in front of them, to you, that I didn't know what was going on, they would be really freaked out. And I don't have enough shrinks up here in the Brahma heaven. <laughs> so I'm telling you now that I don't know. And the person to ask is Buddha down there, Shakyamuni Buddha. He's my guy. I love him. And go down and ask him the answer to your question. A, and B, do me a favor while you're at it. Ask him to please tell the human beings that I am all, I'm very all-knowing. I'm very good. I do my best for them. I don't mind being thanked and worshipped when they are, <laughs> things are going great for them. Yeah. yeah. But when evil happens, when they have a horrible time, when their children are killed, when they have a holocaust or something, they're victims of a holocaust. I don't like to be blamed. So uh, we're all mutually engaged. We have a mutual causation of what happens to us. And they have their own burden of responsibility, as do I. And I do my best to avoid such things. But I can't. I'm not omnipotent. And uh, please, Buddha, please tell them that. That we all have to do our best. Right? Mm -hmm. That's in the ancient Buddhist text. So, you know, for example, you'll hear a lot about people will think Buddhists are atheists. And many Buddhists will proudly mm. say, I'm an atheist. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And that's completely incorrect. They are simply don't believe that any one deity is the creator of everything, can be blamed for everything, or thanked for everything. 
the ones who are nice can be thanked for being nice. And they're very powerful. It's like you don't mess with the mayor of London, <laughs> you know, and by driving without a mask and, you know, crazily around the streets, right? You don't want to do that. But that's not making him mayor omnipotent by any means, right? And uh, so Buddhists believe in gods, in other words, plentifully. And they believe in certain really important and powerful ones even. And they're very friendly about them. And they think the best ones are very compassionate and nice. And the demonic type ones are really pain in the ass. And they worry and they, they can handle them. But Buddha, Buddha is not, a, not one of them. Buddha, in, in a way, Buddha can manifest as a god because Buddha has unlimited embodiments, a Buddha. But, and, but they would say the real word for Buddha from the most ancient level in Buddhism is Deva Manushyanam Shasta. I presume you know a little Sanskrit because you're a yogi. A little right? bit. So you yeah, know yeah, Sanskrit. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. oh, you maybe know a lot. I know you maybe know more than me. No. But I'm just saying <laughs> Deva, Deva Manushyanam, genitive plural. Deva means God. Manushya means human. So the teacher, Shasta means teacher, teacher of humans and God. That's what a Buddha is. And the reason he's teacher is not to dominate because teachers are not considered dominators. Teachers are considered servants of students because the student's knowledge is what's important in a class, not the teacher. The teacher's ability to help the student bring out their inner knowledge, like in true education. You know, leading out of the student, the student's own inner wisdom. That is the theory of Buddhist education, and that is what all Buddha can do. He can't implant enlightenment in a student, but he can help them bring it out themselves. And what's the aim? I mean, is it, I mean, would you speak a little the bit about the difference is to between be a Buddha, be a Buddha, but also between the Hinayana and the Mahayana? So I know you're. Uh, uh, well, you're I don't. In... I don't. I don't like the term. Okay. But but I understand it, and way I what I translated as I translated as individual vehicle and universal vehicle, or you could even say social vehicle. And what that means is that the individual vehicle is therefore shows when you translate it like that, it shows you that those who are allowed to think by Buddha but never quite confirmed in that thinking that nirvana is somewhere elsewhere from samsara, you say that's an individual vehicle. Right. So in other words, they feel that they as an individual can leave the company mm. of others mm. and leave the relative world to go into an absolute nirvana. Because nirvana is kind of presented as, as an absolute, in a sense of bliss is the absolute nature of reality. So... So freedom, which means which really means freedom, actually. So 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 they th they think they can personally go there and leave other people behind. So in that sense, what the hina means is they're they're deprived of the company of others, actually depriving themselves. But the and the, and but Buddha allowed that and even seemed to teach it, although he was constantly hinting against that that interpretation of what he was teaching. But he let it go. Because people who are really depressed and very sensitive to the vulnerability of themselves as sensitive human beings to suffering and very concerned about death and, and pain and agony and old age and this kind of thing, when you say life itself is bliss to them, they're going to say, all right, <laughs> are, are you trying to sell me the London Bridge? <laughs> you, are you asking me to buy the London Bridge? 
they're just going to laugh. And this is one of two things. They'll become 100% cynical. There's no thing. If they think you're somebody great, and you're just full of it anyway, so then everybody's full of it. Or or they will and become very nihilistic and more right. depressed. Okay? So you yeah. let them think they can get out just themselves because it might seem overwhelming to such a person that they can't be really free until everybody else is really free. Yeah, I suppose it was a precursor, really, or a little fish hook into the, the, uh, the Bodhisattva teachings that I know that you know, um, are very important to... Uh, the Vajrayana and, uh, you know, all, most Buddhists, yeah, right? Exactly. The idea of compassion and the idea of yeah, uh, yeah. building um, well, good... Yeah, it's, it's even there in the so-called Hinayana or individual vehicle, but it's just that they rely on Buddha to do it. They don't think they need to do it. Yeah, it's more kind of meditation-based, isn't it? And, you know, I mean, that's... This no, is no, the, no, both no? are equally meditation Right, okay, okay. Furthermore, furthermore, in Indian history, more monasteries were built by Mahayana Buddhists than the Theravada Buddhists. Although the vow of the monastic is the Theravada vow, or parallels, Mahasangika, Savastivada, there are 18 different versions. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, variety in that. But, but the, the vow of the celibacy, poverty, uh, and uh, you know, homelessness, etc., you know, the nonviolence, the vow of the monk, or the, uh, the nun, the mendicant, really, is uh, is only the the Theravada vow, the individual vehicle vow. There's no Mahayana vow of such celibacy. There, there was a Bodhisattva vow, mm. but that could be I or lay person, or that doesn't connect to one's home. You could say home or homelessness. So 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 there's no real conflict actually really between them, except maybe certain people in in history, Buddhist history, uh, lay, especially after. The synthesis of the three vehicles in India that was achieved from about four or five hundred of the common era until twelve hundred when Buddhism was driven out of India by conquest by non-Indians, uh, basically burning the whole place down, uh, the, the, all the many universities that were there, and, and not tolerating the monastery, monasteries and so forth, and see, thinking of the Buddhists as atheists and therefore killing them, you know, coffers, you know. And not even trying to convert them to Islam, you know? and that was a really violent time in the twelfth, eleventh century. So, so, uh, so the point is, Buddhists are theistic, mm. and they are, and they believe in the goodness of the universe, and um, totally, and um, and so they're, and they, and they, they don't also don't, they don't believe that people don't have selves. Of course they do, they, but they are only relational selves. There's no non-relational self. Mention the bodhisattva practices. What 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 is the because uh, it's the fun, it's a really fundamental root in the Buddhism, right? This this uh, aspiring to to be a bodhisattva, right? Yeah, sure. Well, the the bir- the person who discovers a kind of level of nirvana by becoming transparent to themselves and achieving complete uh, going beyond nothingness, even. Into a more subtle state beyond nothingness, which they call like an emptiness, almost like a state of emptiness. But then having the incredible experience that emptiness is empty of itself. It's like freedom is not a trap where you're imprisoned in freedom. Freedom is free of itself. So you're free to engage with, you know, connecting yourself. We a little bit, that's a, and when you connect, that's a little bit bondage. 
a little bit, you know, you're, you're attached to this or that. So therefore, you're, you're connected to it. So it's part of you. So you have to pay attention to it. So it's not, so it's not absolute freedom. So, but absolute freedom gives you the freedom to relate. You can't be trapped in it. But the, you know, the, 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 the Hinayana one, the one who, the ones who are depriving themselves of the company of others are the ones who get stuck on that idea of, of almost that self-annihilation is the only way to, to be free. So you can, because everything, they see everything as a prison. So therefore, they, you can't explain to them that you can be connected and still free in the midst of the connection. Because that seems cognitively dissonant to them. Actually, it is cognitively dissonant. But then if you develop the ability to sustain cognitive dissonance without becoming chaotic and nihilistic and be good enough good, you know, like, like uh, Winnicott, the great uh, child psychologist, be a good enough mom. Not the absolute mom, but a good enough mom. Be a good enough yogi. Be a good enough person. Then, then you're on the road to Buddhahood. You know? And what Buddhahood is, is the absolute good enough uh, free being who is also totally loving and totally knowledgeable, totally wise, omniscient, definitely omniscient. What's the importance of compassion in it as a practice teaching? It becomes of absolute importance. Right. Relative absolute importance, mm. because if you, uh, like, for example, are you compassionate to your own thumb on your chin there? <laughs> of course you are. If you, if, if you had a thumbtack and you put your foot, thumb down and it was pierced by the tip of the thumbtack, yeah. yeah. ah, you would, first, first priority for you would be to solve the pain, right? That means compassion. You wouldn't have to think, should I be compassionate to my thumb today? Is it too much trouble to bother with it? So, no, you would instantly deal with the pain. So Buddhahood is absolute empathy in the sense of you become everybody else. Do you know the story of why the Japanese were barred from international crew competition in the 30s? No. Before the World War? No. In Cambridge, you know, eight-man crew, rowing. They almost, they almost beat everybody in world competition up in Cambridge. Really? In right, right. Yes. They were very within like inches right. of winning. Yeah. They finally, you know, cultivated, you know, competitive spirit. And then two of their members died. <laughs> Had brain hemorrhages type of thing, strokes. Because they got out of body in the group, identifying with the group. And they went past the ability of the body. It's like the marathon runner who mm. went from marathon to Athens gave the warning to the Athenians that the Persians are coming and died because mm. he exceeded the ability of his body, right? By being by the level of altruism. Okay, so the human being, all animals actually, especially mammals, but particularly the human, has the ability to identify completely empathically with another. You know, mom. The baby comes out of the belly, but at first the mom and the baby are one being. And the mom always remains, there's a degree of empathy to the child, even when it's like when they're 80 and 60. <laughs> Still, she mom never gives up, you know, somewhere. Even they may be arguing and they may be angry with each other. She's still completely empathic to the child, you know. And the male has some ability. That male 
males can empathize with the platoon in the war. You know, even they're hating and they're, they're pumped on hatred, but they can be empathetic. So when when the booby trap kills the kid, kills the 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 partner in the platoon, they machine gun the grandmothers in the village because they go berserk because they were wounded. First, it's like they felt it themselves. So compa- the ultimate compassion is built up on ultimate wisdom, which is the wisdom of the transparency of the self, which doesn't mean you don't have it. It means it's transparent. So that when it becomes transparent, it expands and it adopts others as themselves. And so you and I are looking at each other and we, we know the face is where we see the boundary. Oh, you're over there inside the face. Oh, I'm over here inside the face. But if we were empaths, I would be completely clairvoyant about what you're thinking and feeling and you would about me. So we'd have a very different conversation in a way because we'd really know exactly what the other one, where the other one was puzzled confused or disturbed or whatever it was, or we might decide to run away from <laughs> whatever, you know, but we'd be perfectly empathic. Mm, mm. But then, but luckily, it's again, it's, it's an inexplicable state. Finally, reality is inexplicable. That's key to science. It's not a key to mysticism, it's a key to science. Since the reality is inexplicable, there's no dogmas that are absolute. Theory will not trump experience. Okay, so my point is, the more empathetic you become, the more free of any sense of fixed self you are, and therefore the more you're free-flowing in the pure vitality of life. You're like dead and alive, you're asleep and awake at the same mm. time. And you're completely therefore able to feel what everybody else feels, and react to it. And then you have this thing of multiple embodiments. Like right now, have you ever wished in the last four days that you could be a patriot in Ukraine, standing shoulder to shoulder with them, and actually maybe bringing a couple of extra drones or Stinger missiles or something to get that long convoy that's three miles long that's riding in towards Kiev based on the insanity of the KGB guy, poor old KGB guy who was just so... You know, oh, they call themselves FSB, but I have an acronym for that in English. FS, you, to really get my acronym, you have to add an O, lowercase O, F-S-O-B. <laughs> and you can imagine the F and the S-O-B, F-S-O-B. And he's crazed. He wants to restore. The, these, Bush was just as bad. And Cheney, they want to restore their power in the 20th century of the world wars. They want to be able to have wars and have the only a few counterparts in the intelligence services of the, of the other dictatorships. And they want to reestablish that. And even in America, we have this fancy 70 million people voted for someone who said he wanted to be a president for life. He wanted to be Hitler. He, 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 wanted, he was a white supremacist. He said so. They were great people. I love it. Did they ever, well, there was a card-carrying member of Nazi Party in the 1930s in New York. And they're voting for that guy in their land of democracy. So have you, if you wanted to be, I'm sorry, I have to digress there, but if you wanted to be an autocrat, or rather, I'm sorry, if you wanted to save democracy because you're British and you like it, Magna Carta, you wish you could do Magna Carta and the guy with the hairdo worse than mine. The little Tory guy with his little hairdo. <laughs> 
Bojo. Okay. <laughs> but therefore, if you wanted to stand with the Ukrainians, if you felt like I would like to, and in fact, if everybody could have an extra body and go stand there with the Ukrainians and the poor Russian kids, did you know that they broke their law and they sent little kids to the front who are, who are just barely conscripted, right. drafted? Mm. And their law mm. is that in, a, in an open engagement like that, you could only send seasoned, trained volunteers. Right. Mm. And they're sending these completely untrained kids who are like, you don't know, why, why am I killing my friend the Ukrainian? <laughs> and they're like, Puzzle. Most of them must be some seasoned ones who are going to shoot them if they defend, but they or surrender. But they're, they, you know, it's just the crazed people. So if you wish that, the point is, if you're a Buddha, you could be thousands of white-handled peacekeepers in the middle of the field if that would really help to stop both sides from being killed, not just one, because the whole thing is to stop all of that kind of thing. As the Dalai Lama has said, he has transmitted to us Buddha's message, which is that, and which is not to be Buddhist. Buddha does not want everybody to be a Buddhist. Because if he did, then everybody who thought they had another dogmatic religion would completely freak out, and we'd have religious wars. He wants them to stop doing that, too. They want everyone to be Muslim, everyone to be Christian, everyone to be... Mm. But luckily, the Jews, the Jews have to be born, that's why yes. they, he likes them. He likes them, prefers them, because they, you have to be born there. And the, and the Hindus are a little bit like that, although Vedanta is a little bit different. But uh, you know, they don't try to make other people. But the, the, especially the Buddhist Christians and Muslims are the worst cases, because they think everybody should be like them. And, but luckily, the Buddhists mean everybody should be like them, meaning not a dogmatic fanatic. Anti-dogmatic fanatic, if you will. And, and the other two, they they have that in the core. They have to, you have to do definite practices to be a Buddhist. Like as time is ticking no, on, what's, no, no, what's no, the, no, 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 people no, no, always no, think, no. well, Buddhists, you have to meditate, right? Like, what's, yeah, no, you don't. No, right. no, no, okay. no, 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 right. meditate. Everybody's meditating. Every time you watch a BMW commercial on television <laughs> or one of those drug commercials. You're meditating and you implanted and you're cultivating a sense of dissatisfaction because you don't have a BMW. You don't have a whatever it is. And they want you to catch rest your one and buy a new one. Okay? And if the drug thing is, oh, gee, maybe I have that. Maybe I should take one of those. You know? And, 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 and meditating, everybody is meditating all the time. Meditation is not a panacea. If you will join a, a responsible Buddhist teacher, they will not tell you meditate right away. No way. They will say, no, excuse me, learning. Your wisdom first has to be born of learning. Second, your wisdom has to be born of discursive meditating, you know, like debating in your mind, discussing with others. Then you can do bhavana, which we translate as meditating, but that's wrong. Bhavana means realizing, making what you understood intellectually real. Bhavana, make it a reality. It doesn't mean understand. It doesn't mean think about it. it. Meditating means realize it, one-pointed. Just put your mind on what you have realized that makes sense. If you just become one-pointed and stop your thinking based on an internal sense of an absolute self, the real me, I'm the most important thing in this room, you know what, 20 years later, you're going to jump up? Yeah, I'm the most important thing in the <laughs> Fucking universe. 
That's what you're going to do. Therefore, we have all these scandals in those centers. And I, they can be Tibetan, too. I don't get, it doesn't have to be British or American to have a scandal. Quite the opposite. Although we have plenty, plenty of them who don't, who, like James Jones at Jonestown, they kill people in their cult. And they're supposedly not into meditating or into praying because they're Christian. So meditation is not the panacea, and everybody does it. Mm. It's part of learning. It's learning that does it. And what, we, what learning, Buddhas was rebelled against the social systems on this militarized planet of the last 10,000 years. And those, those militarized social systems are putting everybody down. You're a stupid human. You can't understand anything. We have a book where God told us who was the one who knows everything, but we own the book. And we will let you have it if you do exactly what we say the interpretation of this book is. <laughs> And therefore, you, are, you can't understand this for yourself. So even your common sense sucks. Mm, mm. And you have to be obedient to understand. That is to stand under us. And that's what the Vedic Brahmins were doing and Kshatriyas were doing Buddha's own class of the warrior kings. And that's what Chinese were doing. Don't say the Asians. The Asians <laughs> are a little less into it because they had this rebellion going on in the middle of them, a little more psychologically and scientifically and forcefully. The religious way it was was just a counterculture and didn't restrain the samurais and the, the Khmer and, you know, totalitarian emperors. And but the Indian ones became really ridiculous in their armies and therefore they were conquered. After, after 1500 years of yoga and Buddhism, they were pushovers like the Tibetans and the Mongolians today. And like we all have to be a little bit pushovers and then we can debate. You Brits are good. You debate better than Americans. Americans come to blows right away if they get emotional in their discussion. Hmm. You know, they think they want to fight. But you can argue forcefully to others without raising the fist, you know, a little bit. You have a good tradition like that. And that kind of discussion is what we have to have between the Russians and the Ukrainians and the Westerners and the Germans and the blah, blah, blahs and the Chinese, and the Mongolians, and the Tibetans, and the Uyghurs, and the Muslims, and the Christians, and, and that's what we have to have. And that's, that's what Dalai Lama said, 21st century, we cannot have wars like the 20th century. And those guys are just so 20th century. <laughs> Bo Bush, and, Bush and Putin and Xi. Bush and Putin and Xi. We don't need them. They're they showing how irrelevant they are in the grain right now. So no, I'm coming back. I'm sorry. I know I digress badly. Yeah, I apologize. That's right. But wait, just, wait, wait. I know. Yeah, I know. I want to say yeah, one thing. Yeah. To answer your question, yeah. what a Buddha is, is is a universe where everybody has is this ideal kind of being who loves everybody else. It's a little bit like John Belushi's food fight universe. You know the food fight. No. You and I, no. well, you and I are normal people. We have our mousse au chocolat. And we don't want our, even our spouse to dig a big spoon in there or our kid and slurp up that mousse au chocolat. We want to <laughs> eat our own. We got, we're happy to give them a mousse au chocolat, but we want to eat our own. But the universe, what they call a Buddhaverse, I call it a Buddhaverse, they call it a Buddha land, is where everybody primarily wants to give everything to everybody else. And therefore, everybody has everybody else that can care of them, and they can relax about themselves. You know, they can give it all away. 
So it ends up where they're practically throwing the Musa Shalak. They're smearing each other in <laughs> Musa Shalak. Because you get a lot more Musa Shalak from other people than you would in your own little portion. <laughs> right? Yeah. So that's the ultimate goal. Because that is what the infinite energy of the universe sustains. There's no inadequacy. There's no want. There's no need to keep some in subjugation suffering. There's abundance for every being. It's called clear light of the void. Mm. It's, it's almost like nothingness. You know, the materialist lives in a plane of hovering over a vast nothingness because they think the ultimate, the insanity of Richard Dawkins, your dear friend Richard <laughs> Dawkins, and up there in, is it Oxford? I think Oxford. And all of the materialists who, and our Steven Pinker and MIT yeah. and mm -hmm. all of them. And the oil people who, do, who are the evil people who can be oligarchs in this. Everywhere it's oil. The insanity of it is to think that the real bottom nature of life in the universe is nothing. And that life is a weird aberration from the nothing. So they're clinging desperately to whatever they think of as a vitality. And therefore they're strangling themselves and people around them. They're strangling. Because they think that it's all going to be ultimately nothing. Secretly welcoming the nothing because at least it's anesthesia. <laughs> mm. it's, it's heroin. It's morphine. It's no pain. So they're looking for a nirvana of no pain. And they think they automatically have it just by blowing out their brains. So therefore they can blow anybody's brains out, they think. They have no ethics. Fact and value are separated. It's complete bullshit. Value comes from facts. They're relative facts, and values are relative, but that's value enough. And the value is other people's lives, other people's freedom, other people's pleasure. That's a value. Mm. And it's absolute enough that it's only relative. You know? And that because there's no absolute to trump it, you know? And so it's to whatever degree to the person, it's kind of absolute for them that they don't have their head chopped off, and instead they mm. have nice nice ointment to put on their face. And so the, uh, the goal is to become a being who can contribute to that, who can make that happen. And then you say, that's impossible. That's an impossible goal. Yes, in a way it's impossible. But reality is impossible. They, you know, they're always running around saying, oh yeah, we have around 35 billion galaxies. Yeah, because... It, 35 million light years, billion light years is, is, you know, we can't see beyond that. That doesn't mean there aren't things beyond where we can see. That's ridiculous. Obviously, Wittgenstein, you know, Cambridge, Wittgenstein. <laughs> yeah. There's no such thing as, as a finite universe. That's asinine because the word finite has only meaning in terms of infinite. So a boundary would always have to have something on the other side. I mean, prove there's not an elephant in the room. So giving, giving infinite possibility of life, anything is possible, and therefore the holy good is possible, the holy evil is also possible. But who wants to choose that? If we are, once we are here to free to choose and our choices are relative, we're going to choose the infinitely good, of course. Why not? It involves pleasure, joy, freedom, love. Why wouldn't we choose that? You know, ultimately, it's only a relative reason that we choose it. It's not an absolute reason. But 
It's relative is absolute enough for any one person. <laughs> this is definitely not the entry level that um, we... It is we, the entry we, level. <laughs> it's been because the entry level... The oh. entry level is common sense. Okay, that's where like I would start. You, where Adam is someone? Keen. Where would? Oh, very good. You got my surname as well. Some people don't even know the first name when we talk. Um, but here's uh, the first thing: yeah. you and I where, are finite beings, right? Are we finite beings? Yes, but we're also infinite. If we exclude infinity by being finite, it's not infinity. <laughs> So we're fused with infinitude. Each one of us finite beings. And we're living like that. We have the ability to, the common sense can tolerate cognitive dissonance. So you're a very beginning person and realize that everything is possible. They can be great yogis or yoginis. And the guys too can be great yogis. Actually, the women know they can be great yogis. That's why there's so many more of them. <laughs> the guys can also be great yogis. That's that's it. That's a common sense thing. Huh. All right. Yeah. Great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Fantastic. I love. Um, it. I love I'm it. giving a yeah. I'm giving a free talk tonight. All right. At seven o'clock Eastern time, when everybody will be asleep in Europe. But I'm giving a free talk. Called Wisdom is Bliss. It's the name of my book. Go ahead. And I'm not selling the book. I'm not selling the book. No. I'm going to put that for free on Substack. All right. Page by page. Okay. I have my editor's permission. Go ahead. I have a pension. I don't need more money. <laughs> I have a pension. So I, I, I'm doing that tonight at 7.30. And any yogis from there, they can then tune it later. It'll be on a chip Facebook and we can have scholarship. There is a donation but requested, but they, can, they don't have to give it. So I just want to mention that. That's all. Thank you, Bob. Because I, I, yeah. I, 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 that's how we support the Ukrainians, is we be happy ourselves in, in we're celebrating their victory, even if they get killed. They have already won. They have showed the world that it's worth freedom and uh, nonviolence and freedom. Dialogue is worth dying for. And when the world recognizes that, there can be no more wars. Because wars are only done when people sign up to say, yeah, I'll die for this and that dictator's orders. And that's actually stupid, because the dictator is stupid, telling you to go die over something that a personal affront that he experienced. It's just doing it for himself. It's completely stupid. He's a, he's a miserable wreck, that person. He's losing his hair. Okay. His hair's falling out. Look, watch him. He's sit there. I'm going to kill that guy. He's a Nazi. He's a Nazi. Putin is behaving like a Nazi. Not, not the comedian is not a Nazi, he's a comedian. <laughs> Ridiculous. All right, well, well, thank you for your time. All right. Yeah, that was wonderful. And, um, yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you for having me.